0: Chapter two, Falling. Ko o te whenua, ko te whenua, ko o. I am the land, the land is me. To understand what it's like to lose land, to have it taken from you, to be upended from your place and to be told it isn't your place anymore, you have to see land as more than a love story. You have to see land as essential to the definition of who you are. My place in the world is a kind of driftwood uncertainty. I say Wellington, and as a child at Athletic Park with my dad, I even screamed it out loud. The back of my office chair wears a Hurricanes jersey, like a honeymoon tattoo. But it doesn't feel deeply rooted. My children are Aucklanders through and through, and their stories, their connection to Tamaki Makaurau, pull me to this place too. Or the Wairarapa, where my mum is. Or the North where our children discovered space and light and learnt to swim. And in recent years, quite unexpectedly, I have fallen for Taranaki. It was accidental at first. My best friend Tim and I went to see the All Blacks play France in New Plymouth in 2013, and we had one of those stupidly happy weekends that create a nostalgia within hours of it being over. Then I took my family there. We did lend lie, walked the coastal walk, ate good food and visited Parihaka. Then Tim and I returned for a winter roadie, exploring the tiny places of the coast, driving and stopping, driving and stopping, turning west whenever we could to where the sea and land both become black sand. Tim was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2014. After that our travelling became precious, off we'd go, death-defying, so very alive, full of immense gratitude, and also of the realisation that the days do not endlessly follow each other, as our youthful selves had always assumed they would. Rather, they diminish hour by hour towards the end of land and whatever is beyond it. Looking back at the photos from our Taranaki trips, it's mostly food we have paused to record. Tim and I approached food with a religious zeal. Our friendship was 40 years of sublime, absurd, appalling, ridiculous meals. Almost every one of them a giggling sacrament. One photo, I don't even remember exactly where from, is of the greatest ever pie warmer, 50 shades of brown. And a pie purchased from it, steak and cheese of course, which was as delicious as the pies we ate when we wagged school. And then there's a sandwich from the White Inn in Moké, so salty and buttery and good that we each had two. And then there's a pub meal from Awakino, so large we couldn't finish it, roaring with laughter as we shoveled it into a plastic bag that Tim had emptied his cancer drugs out of, sneaking it to the car so as not to look like we hadn't enjoyed it. And on it goes, joyfully, stupidly, as the best roadies do. But throughout our hours on the road, talking our friendship into infinity, the land is also there, endlessly. And the land has such weight in Taranaki, I hadn't noticed until I looked back through my phone how often I'd photographed it. Mount Taranaki, Taranaki Maunga, confiscated from Māori under the New Zealand Settlements Act of 1863, quote an act to enable the governor to establish settlements for colonization in the northern island of new zealand smash and grab and there's pictures of the farms that only barely seem to render the land hospitable as if simply being endured for a while what is their story and why are we so shy about telling it The way the farmland rises to cut out horizons, green then jagged, green then silhouette, green then the weather rolling in, and the stock who gather to be photographed not knowing how treacherous people are. Some of it is inadvertently opposite. On the coast at Pangarehu, just off State Highway 45, very near Parihaka, there's a lighthouse, and on the side it says Pimlico, London, 1864. What shining progress this would have been in a colonial settlement! Safety for some. But by the end of the confiscations that began almost exactly as this Kitset lighthouse was being shipped out from England, Taranaki Maori would have largely been rendered landless. Within 17 years of the date on that lighthouse, the appalling events at Parihaka would occur, and hundreds of men who had committed no crime whatsoever would have been sent away to prison as far south as Otago. Did that lighthouse shine for them? When it swung its circle of light from the sea to the land that had been taken from them, did it call them home or remind them there was no home to go to? Fascinated by the place, I started reading to learn more. And any reading on Taranaki's history leads you straight to loss. Take this, for example, from the Waitangi Tribunal's extraordinary Taranaki report, KoPapa Tuatahi. Taranaki Maori were dispossessed of their land, leadership, means of livelihood, personal freedom, and social structure and values, end quote. Then consider the incendiary ignorance of the opening sentence on the Hobson's Pledge homepage. Quote, New Zealand is a great nation built on the foundation that all of us will be assured the same rights before the law. End quote. Who would say that if they know our history? Who would say that if they know the New Zealand Settlements Act of 1863? Who would say that if they had read the speeches Dame Tariana Turia gave as Associate Minister of Māori Affairs on the subject of colonisation and trauma and the Māori she describes who, and I quote, wake up each morning unemployed, gazing out at land once owned by their ancestors, land now owned and leased by others who generate wealth of it. There were winners and losers then, and there are winners and losers today. Who would say that if they know the evidence given to the Waitangi Tribunal by Peter Moyahu in 1990? When I look at a map of Taranaki and trace the confiscation line, it is an arrow piercing the heart of my people.